Welcome back, everyone, to a special episode by the, of the podcast by the Brothers Blue Shirt. Matt swoops in to intercept. The waiting is over. Matt behind the net. The New York Rangers are the Stanley Cup champions. Step on in overtime. The Rangers move on to Tampa. Swings it in front. And this one will last a lifetime. He's gone. Hello, I'm Steve Bowman, and this is my co-host Matt Bowman. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're excited to bring this episode to you. So, welcome back. This week, we have a couple of minor things to give you an update on the New York Rangers uh, that happened in the past two weeks, and to be looking for in the next couple of days but the biggest portion of this episode will be given to just diving into the advanced analytics side of hockey so we're going to dive into the different types of stats that are used we'll give you a little bit of background on the origin of advanced analytics and how you can use them and interpret them as you interact with them in any articles you might be reading or if it pops up in any sort of broadcast that you're watching of a hockey game. So our goal is to help you understand these statistics a little bit more and just give you uh, a, a general synopsis of the advanced analytics. So before we get to that, we're just going to give you the brief Rangers update. So Steve, do you want to take us through that? Yeah, and uh, before I, even before I do that, uh, I'm going to give our shameless social media plug here. Follow us on Twitter at BlueShirtBros94 and on Facebook, Instagram, and iTunes at the Brothers Blue Shirt. It's a really, um, so, really good follow. We really recommend you giving us a plug on those different social media sites. Definitely. It really helps. Um, so, yeah, getting into the Rangers update, uh, we're going to go through this fairly quickly. There's not a whole lot going on right now. Uh, it's the dog days of summer, um, so there's not a ton going on. But So the first thing, um, an update on the Mika Zibanejad arbitration. So right now, the arbitration date is July 25th. So what this means is that on the 25th of July, um, the Rangers and Mika Zibanejad will go before a an arbiter, if you will, or a judge, and make their cases for what they think um, Zibanejad is worth. So the Rangers right now, their opening argument was or opening position was 4.1 million dollars, while Mika Zibanejad's opening position was 5.35 million dollars. So that's actually really good for the Rangers because I, I I honestly thought that the Rangers were going to end up having to pay him five and a half to six million dollars for a long-term deal of five or six years. So the fact that he's asking for only 5.35 right now is is good in one way in that if we do sign him to a longer-term deal, he's not really going to be unreasonable um, in asking for too much money. And then also... Um, the other thing to take away from this is is that Zibanejad could be betting on himself. So essentially, by asking for a lower a lower number right now, he could be setting himself up for a one or two year deal um, for the from the Rangers at a lower price, which would then put him in for a bigger payday uh, down the road in a year or two. Yeah, so we'll so see what the, happens. The idea being that over the court, if he signed one of those short term contracts. He would bet on himself, and if he produced a lot of points, put up a lot of goals, uh, his contract would expire 
sooner rather than later, that one or two year deal rather than a four or five year deal, and then he could sign a larger contract uh, after producing more numbers. Exactly. So we'll see what happens. Uh, um, either way, it looks like they're, I mean, the Rangers are going to sign Mika Zibanejad. It's just whether or not they go to arbitration, and it's just a matter of whether they sign him for one year or they sign him for a number of years. Um, so then the next item, um, both the Rangers' first-round draft picks, Philip Keitel and Leas Anderson, have been signed to three-year entry-level contracts at $925,000 a year. Um, one thing to take note about these contracts is if they do not play in the NHL or the AHL, these contracts do not kick in um, until they come to professional hockey. So right now it looks like Philip Keitel will definitely not be on the Rangers and probably won't be in the AHL, but Leah Anderson could be. Um, on the Rangers team, and so his contract could kick in this year. But either way, it's just housekeeping for the Rangers. They took care of what they had to do, and we're looking forward to seeing both these guys in the future. Then next item, Pavel Buchnevich uh, had an interview with a Russian newspaper back home in Russia um, in which he – there was a couple – I guess a couple controversial um, – comments not, not really controversial but somewhat controversial in the fact that he made mention of Lindy Ruff who's had a history with um, some Russian players in the past where one Russian player I believe actually went back to the KHL because of Lindy Ruff's either treatment or usage of him and then the other comment or the other topic that was um, brought up was the fact that Buchnevich said that after he came back from his injury this past year. He didn't really have a set role. He didn't know what his job was because of the way uh, AV used him. So it's another thing to watch for this coming year to see how Pavel Buchnevich interacts with Lindy Ruff, who he did, to his credit, he did say he didn't have any concerns about it. And then also to see how AV uses Pavel Buchnevich. I personally believe he should be top six forward. I think he should be on a line with Mika Zibanejad and Chris Kreider. I think that line would be electric and would put up a ton of points. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Then the last the last bit of news uh, that actually has been going on for a little while now, and actually again today another tweet or another couple tweets went out there saying that. There's a possible Tyler Bozak deal in in the works or almost done already. Uh, we'll see what happens, but this would uh, shore up our center depth. Tyler Bozak would immediately slot in in our number two center slot. He would replace the Derek step on points that we lost, and it would be a great addition. But again, this is these are only rumors, and they're not even very cr- super credible rumors, but we'll see what happens in the coming days. All right, well, thanks for that update, Steve. Uh, Definitely some things to keep an eye on. And just as a reminder, we talked about the arbitration of Zibanejad, which is happening on July 25th. So chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, that has already happened, as we are recording this podcast on July 23rd. So you will most likely already know the answer to how that went down. So without further ado, we will jump into the advanced analytics. So before we get into uh, the, the details or the nitty-gritty of 
hockey advanced analytics. I uh, just want to give you a brief background on the history of advanced stats and how it came into the professional sports world. So it really became it, it, it got into the spotlight with a general manager by the name of Billy Bean who was working with a, an MLB team, the Oakland Athletics. He had a really small salary cap to work with. Uh, the the Oakland A's is a pretty small market, and uh, he didn't have a ton of money to be doling out huge contracts. So he started looking into these uh, advanced stats and analytics to try to put together the best team that he could for the smallest amount of money. And they ended up being really successful. Uh, they went on a ridiculous winning streak that I... I can't remember the, the number of games they won in a row, but um, it, it was incredible. And so you could see it in the MLB now. Advanced analytics are all over the place. Um, and other many other uh, major sports are using these stats, like the NBA is uh, and the NHL, of course, as we're going to get into. So, Steve, you know a little bit more about the, the baseball uh analytics the just a couple of examples of specific stats yeah so baseball i mean baseball i think um was a little ahead of the nhl um maybe not um i really don't know the the details of the timeline and in when general managers really started paying attention to it but yeah in baseball some of the stats that you see now are woba war or wins above replacement whip winning or walks and hits per innings pitched so the, some of these stats are they're just um, other ways to measure a player's value. So the win above replacement is actually used quite a bit. Um, it's almost the, I would say the the biggest stat that is look a player is judged by. So um, the number of wins above a, above a replacement level player that um, a player brings to the table. So. Um, but then, so again, like Matt said, this isn't a debate on the validity of the analytics or the extent to which they should be used, um, although maybe in the future we will do that. But this is simply an explanation of the major analytical hockey stats. Right. So, yeah, I think in, in previous years, uh, the advanced stats in hockey in particular, uh, as, as I'll get into in a little more depth in a minute, but it was really the end-all, be-all. Like, a lot of writers and reporters would look at these advanced stats and they would point to them and say, well, this team can't be successful because these stats aren't that great. Um, and and really, like, we're not going to have that debate, but I think our, our view is that uh, they're a helpful stat, but they're not the end-all, be-all, so... And that's what our Twitter poll came up with as well. I think somewhere around 70% of the respondents um, agreed with that um, argument. So. Yeah, it seems like the general sentiment across the hockey world is kind of balancing out in that in that view. So, All right, so without further ado, we'll get into the first one, and probably the most popular of the advanced stats, and that is the Corsi rating. So Corsi is a statistic that's used – Generally, the main purpose of it is to measure the puck possession a team has over the course of a year. So what that means is we they, it, it measures shot attempts and it, it, it measures their shot attempts and their shots given up. So 
what that means is it would it would be their total number of shots that they put on the other team and then the number of shots that they give up against their goalie. And this isn't the traditional uh, type of shot in the shot on net. It's rather any type of shot that you try to throw at the net. So it could be a shot on goal or it could be a shot that gets blocked before it even gets to the net or a shot that completely misses the net wide. The idea being that in order to shoot the puck, you have to have possession of it. So the shots on goal are used to uh, develop this stat. So when you're looking at a player, so when, when we were researching for this podcast, we looked at the best, um, the best player in the NHL with the best uh, Corsi. So that is Patrice Bergeron. So he, in, in this previous season, he was on the ice for 1,198 shots for. So while he was on the ice, his team generated 1,198 shots. Shot, a, a, shot attempt, just to clarify, shot attempts. I yes. don't want to get... Yeah, shot, shot attempts, correct. Yeah, I'll try to use that. So he was on the ice for that many shot attempts. Now, on the flip side, he was on the ice for 762 shot attempts against. Now, the way that you come up... Now, I should have mentioned this before. You can measure Corsi in a couple of different ways. Uh, the Just those straight-up numbers um, are... Uh, they're Corsi for and Corsi against. So his Corsi for would be 1,198, and his Corsi against would be 762. Now that's those two aren't really used as much. The one that's a little more common is the Corsi for percentage, and this is a pretty simple calculation that we want to walk you through, uh, just so you can understand how we come to these numbers. So in order to come up with that Corsi 4 percentage, which is probably one of the more popular stats that you'll see in different articles, all you do is you take the total number of shot attempts for, so the shots that they generated against the other team, and divide it by the total number of shot attempts by either team. So sticking with Patrice Bergeron, you would take that total number of shots for, which is 1,198 and divide it by the total number of shots that were given up either way while he was on the ice, and that number is 1,960. And all you have to do to come up with this stat is you just divide 1,198 by 1,960, and that comes out to 61%. And on the other side, if you want to come up with his Corsi against, you do the same thing, but you use, instead of shots for, Shot attempts for, you use shot attempts against over the total number of shots given up. So that would be 762 divided by 1,960, and that comes out to 38%. So that's the Corsi 4 percentage. Uh, the next one, which is a little more uh, complicated to come up with the statistic itself, is the Corsi 4 over 60. So obviously there's 60 minutes in a hockey game, so this is a statistic that is just trying to come up with over the course of the average 60 minutes that a hockey player plays, which actually comes out to more like three, 
three total games that they play in because a, a, a top-line forward will average around 20 minutes a game. But this is taking the Corsi 4 over 60 minutes to, to find out what their, their Corsi is. So in order to come up with this statistic, you have to do, I don't know if you can reach back all the way to uh, middle school where you're doing algebra. It's a pretty simple um, pretty simple equation where you do the cross, multiply, and divide. So in order to set this up, you would take there, if you're trying to find the Corsi 4 over 60, you, you set it up by putting 1,198, which is and again, we're using Bergeron as an example. 1,198, which is their total shot, his total shots for, and put it over his total ice time for the year. So that number is 1,035.22. And then you multiply that by x over 60. So that's your equation, and then all you have to do from there is cross, multiply, and divide. So that would be 1,000. 198 times 60 and that then you divide that number by 1035.22 and you come up with a Corsi 4 over 60 of 69.44 so what that means is the average number of shots that he's on the ice for or the average number of shots that his team generates while he's on the ice over the course of 60 minutes is 69.44 shots which if you think about it that's a pretty incredible statistic right that's that's over a shot attempt a minute yeah uh so and then to to do the flip side the Corsi against over 60 you just do the same formula but instead of putting uh 1198 you put 762, which is his shot attempts given up, or shot attempts against. So you would just again cross multiply and divide. Uh, so 762 times 60 divided by his total ice time, which is 1,035.22, and you come up with 44.16. Now, again, just as a reminder, I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, the description of Corsi. Corsi is a metric that's used to try to determine or at least point to the amount of possession that your team has while you're on the ice. So the idea and all the emphasis behind these shot attempts is that in order for you to possess the puck, you have to, or in order to generate a shot, you have to possess the puck. So these these shot attempts um, are usually a pretty good indicator of whether you were possessing the puck. Right. So, so some some other implications. Of, so, like, the implications of that is the team that has more shot attempts, generally speaking, is going to score more because the more you shoot, the more you score, right? Yeah. And then, obviously, the more you score, the better chance you have of winning. So that's, that's a real down-and-dirty uh, basic implications of what Corsi means. Um, so for a while... Um, while the while the Kings were one of the dominant teams in the uh, NHL um, back from like 2010 to 2014-15, um, they they were absolute Corsi monsters. They dominated puck possession, and so this is really when people started looking at Corsi and saying, "Oh, maybe this is 
like one of the this is the stat that we should look to to judge whether a team's going to have long-term success um, so it's it was definitely that um, but then recently these past two years and especially this year Pittsburgh Penguins were the Stanley Cup champions this year the Penguins were 16th in Corsi percentage so and I, I believe the the LA Kings were first this year again in right in Corsi and they didn't make the playoffs so yeah it's just it's just something to keep in mind as you look at this stat it's useful but again it's not the the end all be all right um and so then there's we're going to take a look at two other players here and um just for benchmarks for Corsi percentage so the worst NHL player in terms of Corsi 4 percentage um at least of players that played a significant amount of time, was Cody McLeod with a Corsi percentage of 37.88, which is, that's pretty bad. Um, And then player on the Rangers, uh, one of the players that is always, well, he's not on the Rangers anymore, but he was always um, judged negatively for his horrible Corsi percentage was Dan Girardi, and he comes in this year at 44.24%. So, high-end Patrice Bergeron, 61%. Cody McLeod, absolute low-end, 37.88%. And then Dan Girardi at 44.24%. So, but then, like Matt said, you can't, you can't just look at this. You can't uh, look at this in a bubble. You have to um, look at other factors that affect uh, a player's coursey which is the players that he's on the ice with. So maybe you got a really good player, but he's on the ice with a bunch of really crappy players. And so that's going to affect his percentage. Then also zone start percentage. Uh, We're going to go into that a little bit later, but essentially are you starting your shift in the defensive zone, in the offensive zone? If you're starting more of your shifts in the offensive zone, you're going to have a higher coursey percentage. Whereas if you start more of your shifts in the de- defensive zone, you're going to have lower Corsi percentage. And then you also have to look at the players that you're playing against. Are you matched up against top pairs like Dan Girardi was for most of his time with the Rangers? He was the number one right defenseman. And then also you have to take a look at the type of system that you play. So the Rangers of under John Tortorella were a shot-blocking team. They were a defense-first team, so the amount of shot attempts that they generated was not very high. Um, they were founded on solid defense, great goaltending, blocking shots, and grit. So their Corsi was not great, although they still, I'd say they succeeded a fair, fair amount. Yeah. Went to the conference finals. That's right. So, so another... Um, Another thing to look at is the team that you're playing on. So you can't just have a like a gold standard for Corsi. Like if you're above this, you're really good, or if you're below this, uh, you're terrible. Because if you're on a team that's on the like on the bottom half of the league that's really not doing well, then the the team's Corsi will be lower as well. So if you had a player. Uh, like we just got uh, D'Angelo and the step-on trade from the Arizona Coyotes. He had. Do you remember the exact Corsi ratings he had? I believe he had a forty-seven percent, maybe a forty-six. So forty-six or forty-seven. Yeah. So typically you want Corsi to be around fifty or above. 
that's generally what's considered as good. So if you look at his course, you'd think, oh, it's not really that great. It's below below 50. But if you look at that in comparison with his team's course, he, he was well above average, uh, well above that team average. So it also you also need to look at those two in comparison with each other when trying to judge and determine how good a, a player's coursey rating is. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so I think that about wraps up Corsi. Um, I think we covered it pretty well. Um, it's definitely one of the. It can be confusing, but it's really not that confusing once you actually break it down and look at it. But big takeaway to remember is it's an indicator of puck possession. Right. So the next stat we're going to take a look at is the Fenwick percentage, which is it can be considered an alternative to Corsi. Um, a lot of people like Fenwick better than Corsi. Um, I I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. But Fenwick percent the way you figure out or so the the difference between Fenwick and Corsi is that Fenwick does not take into account shots blocked. So let's say a team attempts ten shots and three of them are blocked. For figuring out Corsi they're going to take those 10 shot attempts. However, for Fenwick, because three of those shots were blocked, they're going to use the seven. So three shots were blocked out of the 10. They're not counting those three blocked shots. So the implications here is that a player that blocks a lot of shots is going to have a higher Fenwick percentage than Corsi percentage. And so they're not count. They're not counting blocked shots against a person. So, the way you figure out the number is the exact same for all of the ways that you uh, figured out Corsi percentage, except that the number is going to be different because you take away the number of block shots from the total number of shot attempts. Um, so the implications here is for a player like Dan Girardi who blocks, who blocked a lot of shots, that's what he made his game on, um, his Fenwick percentage is going to be higher than his Corsi percentage. So looking at the hockeyreference.com, Stats. Dan Girardi's Corsi was 40.6, which is different than what we said above. Um, different um, different sites uh, have different um, me- measurements to determine whether it was a shot attempt or not, so that you're going to see some difference there. Um, but Dan Girardi's Corsi, according to HockeyReference.com, was 40.6, whereas his Fenwick percentage was 42.6. So this is showing that he actually was better than the Corsi percentage suggested because Dan Girardi was blocking a lot of shots. Um, so essentially this Fenwick treats shot blocking as a skill and doesn't count it as a player. That's that's the big takeaway here. Right. So I think that's, that's helpful. I, I just thought about this now. It's helpful when looking at a, a player's defensive abilities um, like their Corsi against, I would rather look at their Fenwick against. But in terms of looking at puck possession, it doesn't matter if the shot gets blocked or not. They still had possession to take the shot. So if you're right, if you're trying to uh, get a feel for the team's possession, then I think Corsi is a better the better stat to go with because uh, the blocked shot metric doesn't matter as much. But when you're trying to figure out a a player's defensive ability, I think Fenwick is a little more honest to their capabilities because they, like Dan Girardi, might tend to block more shots. Right. 
So the next stat that we're moving into is one called PDO. And this is often referred to as the luck stat. Um, it's a, a stat or a statistic that's used to judge the, or it, it takes the shooting percentage of a, a player or a team and it combines it with the save percentage of that, that player or team's goalie. So basically the way this stat is used is, is if it, a player has a, a really high shooting percentage, then and, and a good save percentage then that number is going to be a little higher so generally this statistic it it hovers right around 100 so if you're above 100 then that means you have a really good or lucky pdo and if you're below 100 then that means you're a little less lucky or your pdo isn't as great so just to give you a an example, a player like Alex Ovechkin who has a really high shooting percentage, he typically has a higher PDO. So I, I looked it up and over the course of his career, his PDO has averaged between 102 and like 105. So that's a really good um, PDO. So the reason this statistic is important, uh, it actually really pertains to the Rangers earlier uh, in the regular season this previous year because if you remember they were just shooting the lights out they were sh they were beating teams by four or five goals pretty consistently and a lot of that had to do with a really high shooting percentage um, players like Michael Grabner who was almost a 30 goal scorer uh, was just shooting really well and that was happening across the board so I don't they don't have the the statistic for the PDO at the time of that in that particular season they just have it over the course of the whole season but I would I would imagine that their PDO was really high in that early portion of the season so they're again it, it takes the the player or the team's shooting percentage and combines it with their goalies save percentage and that that comes out to somewhere around 100. And right. The, so yeah. to, to use an example here, let's say Michael Grabner, his shooting percentage, let's say, is 10%. So 10% of every shot he takes goes in the net. Then you take the save percentage of Henrik Lundqvist, let's say 920 just for easy easy math here. Um, you take the – well, so 90 for – to make it easier, 92. 92% – of, his, of the shots um, against him are saved. So you take the 92, you add 10 to it, and you come out with a PDO of 102. So Michael Grabner's PDO would be 102. And so like, like what we saw um, towards the end of the year, he regressed back towards the mean or average, and um, he started shooting the puck in the net less often, and so his PDO came back down. So PDO is really an indicator of the of regression or it can be an indicator of regression back to the mean or average yeah so if if your team or your favorite player is just uh, really doing uh, well like it, it seems like above average if you take a look at their PDO and it's really high above that 100 mark then uh, you you could probably expect uh, a, a regression in their play so and we we saw that with Grabner. We also saw it with the Rangers. They kind of 
came down from that ridiculously high performance that we as Rangers fans obviously love to see, but it wasn't really sustainable. Right. So then moving on, I guess moving on to the next stat, uh, we mentioned this one earlier when talking about um, Corsi, but the zone start percentage. So this this usually is either it's the zone start percentage is either offensive, defensive, or neutral zone. So the way you figure this out is you take the total number of faceoffs that a player was on the ice for, and so for this one we'll use offensive zone start percentage. So you take the total number of offensive zone starts or the total number of offensive zone faceoffs that he was on the ice for, and you divide it by the total number of starts or faceoffs uh, that he was on the ice for. Period. So let's say Matt Zuccarello was on the ice for ten faceoffs during the game. If he was on the ice for three, if three of those were in the offensive zone, you would take three divided by ten. You come up with thirty percent. So his offensive zone start percentage would be 30%. Then you do the same for defensive and neutral zone. So let's say he was on the ice for three defensive zone starts. His percentage would be 30 again. And then that would mean that his neutral zone start percentage would be 40%. It's a, it's a, fairly, it's a fairly simple stat. It's actually really simple. Um, but sometimes, I mean, it's just one of those ones that a lot of times people are like, oh, what, is, what does that mean? What does zone start percentage mean? Well, it's just that. Where was, where was the face-off? Where were the face-offs when he was on the ice? And so, again, we, we mentioned it before when we were talking about Corsi and Fenwick, but if you look at their Corsi rating side-by-side uh, side with their zone start percentages, uh, it, it'll give you a better idea. Like if you see a player's Corsi is really low, uh, and then you also see that they have a high percentage of defensive zone starts, then that is usually a good indicator of why their course was a little bit lower. Right. And the final stat that we have, this one's also pretty simple, is their, uh, the number of goals that a player is on the ice for over the course of 60 minutes. So uh, it's not the goals that they personally score, but the... It could be their goal, but uh, just if you were on the ice for a goal. So, again, looking at Patrice Bergeron, uh, in this previous season, he was on the ice for a total of 44 goals that his team scored. And that was over the course of 1,035.22 minutes or time on ice. So all you do to figure out this goals for over 60 is you take the total number of goals they scored and again, we're going back to cross, multiply, and divide. So you put that total number of goals, 44, over their total time on ice, which was for Bergeron, 1,035.22. And then you multiply that by X over 60. So, and then you cross, multiply, and divide. So you do 44 times 60 which comes out to 2,640. And then you divide 2,640 by that total time on ice, which is 1,035.22. And that comes out to a grand total of 2.55 goals on average over 60 minutes. Right. So, this so one, is, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was just going to make a quick clarifying point. So, 
when we're talking about this, this stat is goals for 60 as opposed to goals per 60. So I, it's it's a little bit of uh, semantic. It's a little bit of um, it can be a little confusing when you see this this um, this. Matt, Matt already mentioned it, but I just wanted to clarify one more time. Right. This is the way you see this is GF sixty or goals for sixty, as opposed to goals per sixty, which would be G slash sixty or A slash sixty assists for sixty minutes or points per sixty. Right. Which those all measure an individual's goals, assists, or points. Right. This is more of a... It's an individual stat, but as it relates to the team. Right. So. All right. Well, uh, those are all the stats that we're getting into. I think they're the most common that you'll see uh, when, you're, when you're reading through your team stream on Bleacher Report or uh, just listening to a game. You'll probably hear announcers talk about Corsi or um, their shooting percentage or PDL. Um, so just just to uh, give you guys a quick re- review of what we've talked about, we just want to recap all the different stats and just give you a brief description again of what each is. So Corsi, again, is just a statistic that is used to measure the puck possession a team has over the course of uh, the year. So it's again based on shot attempts, and shot attempts includes shots on goal, blocked shots, or just shots that completely miss the net. Uh, and the general idea behind that is that if you're shooting the puck, that means you are possessing the puck. And if, you, if you're generating more shots on goal, then there's a higher likelihood that more goals will go in, and you obviously need goals to win the game so that is basically what Corsi is it's just a metric that's used to measure possession right so then Fenwick very similar to Corsi also generally measured or generally is used to measure puck possession but instead of um, like where Corsi includes blocked shots as shot attempts Fenwick does not include shots or blocked shots as shot attempts so that's the, that's the major difference there. The implication being that players that block shots are going to have a higher Fenwick percentage than Corsi percentage, and it treats blocked shots as a skill. Then yeah, oh go you, ahead. You, no, no go, you ahead. go ahead. Um, so then moving on to PDO, the biggest thing here is this stat is used as a indicator of regression to towards the mean or average. So. A player could be, if he has a high PDO, you want to take a look at his shooting percentage and see if it's above um, his normal career or season shooting percentage. And if it is, then there's a very high likelihood that he's not going to keep up the same pace. Right. And then the zone start percentages, which is the the, just the percentage that gives you an idea of how often they were taking faceoffs in the offensive zone, the defensive zone, and the neutral zone. Um, it's just a, a an easy uh, percentage that you take their total number that they had in any zone that you want to find out over. Uh, you divide that by the total number of starts that they had in any zone. Uh, and again, this is this this helps you put their Corsi or Fenwick 
percentages into a little bit of perspective because you find out if they had more faceoffs in the offensive zone or the neutral zone or the defensive zone. So it just helps you or it informs you a little bit more. All right. And then the last stat we covered was goals per 60 minutes. So, or goals for 60 minutes, my bad there. I messed that one up. Um, goals for 60 minutes. So the number of goals that a player was on the ice for. So not the number of goals that he himself scored, but the number of goals that his team scored while he was on the ice. And so this is an indicator of how efficient the player was when he was on the ice. Right. So uh, that that's really all we have for you on the statistics. We hope you we hope uh, this was uh, helpful for you as you try to dive into the analytics side of hockey. Uh, again, we're not experts, and we we may have uh, made some mistakes along the way. Uh, so probably if, did. Probably yeah, we did. probably did. So if you uh, noticed anything or would like to correct us on anything, we are always looking to learn more about the game of hockey. So you can. Uh, definitely reach out to us if you would like to. And uh, again, uh, we would love it if you followed us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's the best way to contact us with any questions. And um, yeah, so again, we uh, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to the next podcast we'll be putting out to you guys.